Once again, it is just unbelievable the guests that we have on the Ortho Show. We bring you Dr. Antonia Chen on this episode. This woman is on a mission. She does not sleep. She is a professor at Harvard Medical School at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. She has literally 300 peer-reviewed articles. She's got 45 books and chapters. She's only been in clinical practice for seven years. She's an outstanding surgeon and an outstanding researcher, which is so incredibly rare. She has so much energy. We laugh. We have fun. Hers is another amazing, unique story, and I know you're going to love it. I am really excited. We're taking a little pivot here at the Ortho Show, and we're bringing you now Pitch Pro. We have an amazing group of panelists. Think of it sort of like a shark tank for orthopedics. Joe Mullings, Vin Dasa, The Fro, and the bearded one, Matthew Ray Scott, on a panel where medical device and pharma companies come in to pitch their story. We listen. We talk. We provide advice, and it is a hoot. We have amazing personalities. We provide amazing counsel and advice uh, to these groups. We are having a lot of fun. You guys are going to love it. Pitch Pro by The Ortho Show. From medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world. We are really excited today to have Dr. Antonia Chen, who's an associate professor, uh, associate professor of orthopedics at Harvard Medical School, director of research for the arthroplasty service at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and arguably one of the most sought-after lecturer and presenters in the world of joint replacement at this time. Welcome, Dr. Chad. You're too flattering. Thank you. Oh, no, you, you deserve it. It's so funny. You know, we always love to give shout-outs here at the Ortho Show. So Dr. Bill Levine is, you know, is the official fact-checker of the Ortho Show, and uh, he listens every, so we're going to have to be very careful. I know that you just gave Graham Rounds at Columbia, I think it was last week, and he was saying wonderful things about how that went for you, so we love the full circle. Well, I'll tell you, Dr. Levine is who we all aspire to be when we grow up. If I could sleep as little as he did, accomplish as much as he did, and still be as energetic and positive as he is, I'd be set for life. <laughs> he is he is a mentor for mentors. He really is. He's helped. He's made such a difference in the world of orthopedics. And I'm so happy to call him dear friend and uh, and colleague for sure. So but no, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. And I, you know, what we really do here is we really want to get the, the stories, you know, behind each you know, orthopedic surgeon that comes on board. So we always, you know, typically like to start from the beginning. So 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 where'd you grow up and when was it orthopedics, you know, that really seemed to be your desire? So I grew up in Delaware. I was born and raised in Delaware, raised up to medical middle school, and then went to Virginia for a year and then lived in Jersey. So Jersey for me is home. I'm a Jersey girl. I don't know how to turn left. I turn right instead and make a U-turn and jug handles. Um, I didn't know how to pump gas for the longest time. <laughs> That's the craziest part. Um, so love the East Coast, always been the East Coaster. But ortho wasn't even a thought in my mind until my first year of medical school. Um, a fun aside is my sister had an ACL reconstructed, and I'm old, so... 
there's a VHS tape of her uh, ACL reconstruction. She brings it home. She goes, do you want to watch it? And I go, absolutely not. I have no interest in surgery whatsoever. And then fast forward, I'm interested in orthopedics. <laughs> yeah, though, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, there's so different, so many different ways in which people get there. But so, so you go to Yale for undergrad in the in the late '90s, and obviously that must have been an amazing experience. And then you move on to medical school, and I got I'm like, I'm looking at your CV here, and I'm like, all right, so it yeah, obviously it took her a little extra time to get through medical school. I'm like, why did it take her six years? Then I'm like, oh my god, she got her MBA in the middle of medical school. Who does that? What were you thinking? <laughs> so it was actually an interesting thing. I was going to go into private practice and I wanted an MBA to learn how to run my own private practice. Well, no one tells you you don't need an MBA to run a private practice. In fact, you probably do a better job without an MBA. So it wasn't popular then. So there was no really joint degree programs then. So they just started it. And if you applied for the MBA, they paid for your MBA. They wouldn't pay for your medical degree, but they paid for MBA. So they had four spots and four people applied. So guess what? Got it. It's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. So, so were you actually doing both at the same time or did you take two years out to get the MBA? How does that work? So it's a neat program because it only added actually one year. The other extra year actually took me up to do research. I did basic science research between third and fourth year of med school, but it was between the first and second year of med school, which is smart. The first year you did your medical school, you know, regular stuff. And normally during the summer you do research. Well, they took that time and you started your MBA you did one year of MBA and you had another summer bookended at the end. So it's almost like a one and a half year, almost one and three quarters of a year. So you got your two year MBA in that time frame. So, so that's fascinating. So that, so now you, you're getting your MBA, you're going through, uh, through medical school and it's obvious in your pedigree that research is important to you. And uh, you know, it's funny because it, it usually isn't, you know, for, for the career path is like, I'm going to be a kick-ass surgeon or I'm going to go in the lab and do like research type stuff. But it's very rare to find someone that, that wears both hats. And was that something that was just sort of in, it was an inner drive for you or did that find you? How did, how does that take place? So interestingly, I had really no interest in research initially. I did research because everyone told me that once I decided orthopedics, my first year of medical school, I had to do a research project. So like a good little medical student, I went to the chair of ortho and I said, Hey, I'm interested in doing orthopedics. And he goes, I'm only allowed to take two students. And just last week, two students came to me and all the positions are taken. And I go, I'm done. I'm never going to orthopedics because if I don't do research, I'm done. So I got really lucky. Dr. Freddie Tria um, is a private practice guy actually around the area when I was in New Jersey. And he says, I don't normally work with medical students, but I'll take a chance with you. And so I worked with him. And so when I graduated and when I was applying for residency, everyone now has like 25 papers on their CVs. I had one paper with him. And I had one paper with the basic science group that I did when I, you know, took that one year off between third and fourth year of medical school. So I had two papers and I was happy because that was enough to get me onto a, you know, application process. But I wasn't interested in research at that time. But the bug that Dr. Tria set me on was like, this is fascinating. This is interesting. Now, it was interesting because the topic he had me work on was uh, minimally invasive total knee arthroplasty. And let me tell you, that was very controversial when I was doing my interviews because people either loved it or completely hated it. And I was in the conundrum of it. As a medical student, you just do the research with it. So I showed up in my first year of residency at Pitt. And again, I was told, you got to do research. So I showed up to this research meeting and it was, they called it a joints research meeting. And I was interested in arthroplasty because of Dr. Tria. And I had to ask one of the senior residents, I go, is this a joints research meeting? As in like, 
it's a joint group like you're using sports and you know foot and ankle and you know spine all together or is it like joints as an arthroplasty he looks at me and goes arthroplasty <laughs> so then i show up this meeting and they're like what do you want to do research on and i go i don't know i just want to do research because <laughs> that's what i was told to do <laughs> and they handed me a project and the project said the pittsburgh experience uh, musculoskeletal infections and up to then i really didn't know much about infections at all and so he goes here's the data set go to work. And that's what started it. I started doing research on infection and that bug has just kicked off and I can't keep it, seem to shake it, even though I keep trying. Oh, uh, we're, we're going to get to your CV because like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I'm like, I, you know, I literally, I, I had to take two nights to be able to read the damn thing. I mean, it's, just, it's amazing. We'll get there. I don't want to get get ahead of ourselves. So, um, so you're at, you're, you're at Pittsburgh, right? So you get started, you're with some of the greats like Freddie Fu, and I'm sure you went through the entire, all the subspecialties of orthopedics. And uh, so were you drawn? I mean, was there a moment you weren't really sure what you wanted to do? And you had great mentors there, obviously. Amazing mentors in a billion different areas. I got to do research actually with a bunch of different people, just because when you're going through different rotations, like, oh, what about this, you know, case report on, a, you know, pediatric femur fracture? Okay, sounds great. Um, but I was actually really drawn to spine. I love spine surgery. I love that it was open. Um, I had Jim Kang, um, Bill Donaldson. Um, uh, we had June Lee. We had and Tim Ward were our spine guys, and they were great. I love the exposure. I love everything that's about spine. And then I went to clinic, and then I realized I didn't love spine anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all the back pain and all of the issues and all that stuff that goes with it. That's too funny. Uh, so did you spend some time with Freddie Fu in the sports uh, in the sports world as well? I did. Everyone does go to it. And, and, you know, the best thing about Freddie is that he draws you in, in the best possible way, right? He makes you enjoy sports, even if you don't really love sports. So first, your sideline, like we would cover a lot of the sports team on the on the weekends and on Friday nights. And sports in the Pittsburgh high school football is kind of like Texas high school football. It's a religion, right? So everyone's always there, lights are out, everyone's going there and enjoying it. And so this is the first time that I got to stand sidelines. And it's fun to do that. You know, you kind of get that infectious feeling kind of like I did for research with Dr. Fu being there, right? He gets excited and animated. He likes to show us all these new things. Um, he would do the zoo and he would go to the zoo and do ACL exams on, on animals and things. So it's impressive because at least from a research perspective, at minimum, he literally has done the entire gamut of everything about one ligament that anyone else could ever done. And from the entire planet. It's amazing. So, you know, I did a research project with him because how could you not, right? He's done research on everything. So uh, he was a force of nature and it kind of just like Dr. Levine, right? Those two are amazing. They don't sleep and they answer emails before you even write the emails. So I learned a lot just from watching him and how he interacted with people and he treated everyone with respect. He knew everyone's names. He knew people who cleaned the ORs. He knew everyone around him. And that was really fun. So, so one of the rumors I've always heard is that if, if uh, you went to Freddie Fu and he gave you an opinion about the ACL, one of his comments would be, you want a second opinion, you ask Freddie Fu again. <laughs> you know, was, uh, was that real or no? Come on, you got to give it up. <laughs> so that's what I heard on the interview trail. Like I had okay. to consider Pitt and I go there and Freddie Fu was the fastest talking Asian man I have ever met in my entire life, right? And I'm Chinese, so I know people who are Chinese. And so I'm talking to him like, oh my gosh, he's not taking a breath. <laughs> but I will give him a lot of credit that he got a lot of second opinions from other people who got sent to him. So whether or not he was the second opinion of himself, his opinion was right, of course, 
but it was out of course. No, no, it, you know, it's fantastic because it's so funny. I mean, I, I listen to you and, and your accomplishments and you bring up Bill Levine and Freddie Fu, but I mean, you know, Bill and I were co-chief residents together. And so I see so much Bill Levine in you. So I can understand why, why there's such a connection there for the two of you. And he was so happy uh, for you now at the, at the Brigham and all that you're doing. So, so you do this, you know, you, all right, so you graduate with Freddie Fu and the crew, and then you, you head down to Rothman. And that's really where you, you, you start developing, you know, the, you, you do an arthroplasty fellowship with Dick Rothman and some of the greats in the industry. That had to have been a really special year for you. It was awesome. It was something that was totally eye-opening and different on a bunch of different levels. Right? I came from Pittsburgh, which is academia, which is great, but then all of a sudden I'm a private-demic. Right, so you're learning how the business model of running a practice, how to manage people, seeing arthroplasty be done, you know, at the tip top, you know, fast but and efficient, but also well done surgeries, a gamut of, you know, 20 plus arthroplasty surgeons and everyone with different interests. You know, so you talk about the research aspect of things. I got interested in infection as an intern. And then I met Dr. Parvizi when I was a third year resident, when I go to the Musculoskeletal Infection Society, and it's like meeting a celebrity. You know, you walk and you're like, oh my gosh, that's Dr. Parvizi. That's amazing. And so I remember talking, and then when they, when I was applying for fellowship, he's like, you know, we all want you to come to our fellowship. I'm like, you do? <laughs> you just, you don't expect that. You know, it's like, you're just a little peon. You just want to learn from these guys. And then, so I show up and you, it's amazing. You know, Dr. Parvizi would be like, what's the ESR cutoff? What's the CR? And he's, you know, brilliant. Like Rothman basically invented everything in hip at that point in time went from spine to hip, which is even more interesting. Right. So I, it, it was the greats of the great, you know, I learned so much from it. Um, and, and again, fast efficiency and um, learned arthroplasty. I still do everything I do in, did in fellowship um, much to some people's chagrin. I'm a direct lateral supine uh, hip surgeon and <laughs> most don't love that, but that's what I learned from fellowship. And I kept doing that when I was in practice too. So it was, it was fantastic. I was lucky to have those mentors uh, I came from a smaller, you know, joints department at Pitt, and the guys were, were great too. You know, Chick Yates, um, Larry Crossett, and Brian Clatt. And then I'm going over to a great where it's like a billion people around, and everyone does arthroplasty in an amazing way. Yeah, I can't even imagine like running like three rooms and crazy number of patients. I mean, it's like, oh my God, it was really just an incredible facility. And Rothman has really grown to you know worldwide uh, recognition, and they're they're everywhere now. So so you spend three years down at Rothman, and then you have your time, and then you decide you're going to spread your wings, you're going to do something different, and you're going to make your way up to Boston, where a lot of medical information gets out of Boston, but not a lot of me- a lot of medical information gets in. And here you are at the heart, at, at Harvard Medical School, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and you're here for a couple of years now. How is uh, how's Boston treating you? So we call people who stick around Boston forever and ever and ever Preparation H because that's what burns. <laughs> around. Uh, the irony is that, you know, I went to Yale for undergrad, so I have no Harvard gear at all whatsoever. <laughs> that said, it's it's awesome here. It's a different world, though. We're back to the pure academia, right, in a different model, but yet we're actually in the private practice model in some degrees, too. So this is where everything comes full circle. The reason I'm here is because Jim Kang is a spine surgeon from Pitt, who I knew when I was a resident. I'd done some spine research and things like that, and he knew that I liked the research bug for, you know, again, whatever reason. So he said, we're looking for someone to run our research in arthroplasty once you come on up. 
And so good news is I didn't burn bridges. <laughs> he thought I'd still be able to do a good job. So he called me up here. And, you know, it's one of those things where Rothman was fantastic, but it was a good way, as you said, to spread my wings. So came up here. I like it here. There's good sides and there's bad sides to it, of course. As you said, um, as we, before we got on, I finished my revisions at a decent hour. So I'll take that. <laughs> Today was a revision day, so I can't complain about it. Um, the efficiency is a little bit different than Rothman. Um, but the colleagues I work with are, you know, again, unparalleled. It's a group that's a little bit tighter because there's less of us, um, which is kind of nice. Rothman's great in that there were so many people, but we were spread out to a lot of different places. I could actually see my colleagues a lot more frequently and not just in orthoplasty, but in all of their subspecialties as well, too. Um, Jim's a fantastic leader. Um, I torture him. I joke. I'm like, you knew me as a resident. I'm still torturing you now. <laughs> I'm probably still a resident. I had the hardest time switching from calling him from Dr. Kang to Jim. And now I can call Jim. The same thing was true with Dr. Rothman, too. When I had to go from Dr. Rothman to Dick, of all things, it was hard to transition to that. Um, but it's good here. I you know we get a re leader research team, work with residents and fellows. It's a big residency. So it um, keeps me on my toes. And let me say, sleep is optional. Yeah, no, it, you know, it's funny. I, our Vegas odds on you showing up today at five o'clock were about 50 50 because you told Heather, our producer, oh, yeah, it's a revision day. All right. Oh, yeah, it's a revision day at the Brigham. We're going to wind up rescheduling this one. And there you are. You showed up like five minutes late. I'm like, that's impressive. Very impressive. Uh, that's great. I, uh, you know, I've been obviously I'm in private practice just north of Boston. So we refer down there routinely, know a lot of the same people. Uh, so, you know, Boston's a great medical town. There's just tremendous uh, people here and great science that's being done and great clinical practice as well. So, look, I got to, you know, I got to get back to your CV here because, I, you know, it sounds it's it's like you're you were barely bought mitzvah like five years ago. And like you've got 270 peer review papers, 250 presentations. You've got 45 books and book chapters. And you told me like at the start of like, like, you know, medical school, you had like two papers. I'm like, you have been nonstop. How do you do it? <laughs> I put it mildly. I learned a lot from Freddie Fu. You have a lot of help. You cannot do yeah. it yourself. <laughs> I've got good teams. I've got them like I, some of the best medical students I've ever worked with, research fellows and assistants and things like that. And the cool part, actually, the best part of all this is being able to collaborate with others. It's been really fun because I think back in the day, more research tends to be territorial, right? Like, this is my idea. I'm going to run with it. I'm not going to share. Now it's like, okay, I have this idea, but I need a thousand patients to do the study. I'll call up a friend and another facility. Like, okay, what about this? They're like, oh, let me call another friend. And we just kept doing all these kind of group activities together. And now it's not just in the U.S., it's international. And that's been super fun because research has become more fun and collaborative and just getting ideas across the finish line, you know, as opposed to being like, this is my idea or taking ownership or just saying this is all about me. It's about, all right, what can we publish to make a difference for our patients? You know, what can we study? We joke all the time as arthroplasty surgeons, why do you do this? It's not just arthroplasty surgeons, right? It's like, why do I do this? Well, because my mentor did it <laughs> and my mentor's mentor did it, right? Why? Because it works, right? And it does work, <laughs> but let's study it. So it's been fun to do so. And again, sleep is optional. And then I always joke, it's kind of like having a baby, which I haven't had yet. But everyone who had had a baby, they say they had the baby and it was, there were a ton of pain, right? But then they forget the pain and they do it again. 
And again, we apparently have done it over 200 times. So that's my fault. We're not forgetting. Yeah, no, the human body has an incredible ability to forget pain, right? Otherwise, nobody would be signing up for the surgery stuff, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, so all of those college uh, college kids and medical students that are in Boston, you better be calling Dr. Chen because she's got lots of work for you. Clearly, there's going to be something that, that you guys could do to help contribute with her. No, it's And I mean, you're literally, you're literally only in practice for seven years, right? I mean, 2014 is when you, you you graduated and finished your fellowship. So it really is remarkable, you know, how well you're doing here. So, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this at the start of the podcast, right? Like, how is it that, that someone can do both things well? How can you be a clinical surgeon, do amazing revision work, and then also be able to, to do the research? So how much time are you spending taking care of patients and how much time are you spending in the lab or, or doing clinical research as well? So that's what I realized you have to say no to something, right? So my goal originally was to hopefully like run a lab and do clinical research and do surgery. And honestly, you can't do it all. So I don't do basic science research. I collaborate with basic scientists, but I don't run my own lab because I can't do that on a daily basis. So I'm 80% clinical, four days a week. I'm two days OR, two days clinic, and then one day research. But we all know research is not just one day, <laughs> nights, weekends, you know, there's 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so, so that's how I do it. And, and I think the key factor is a lot of times um, it's potential that a researcher can be seen as a not a good clinician. So I think it's important as a researcher to know to do two things. One, make sure you're good clinically, all right? Because you don't want to, you know, if, if, you're, good, if you're not good clinically, then just be a researcher. If you're not a good researcher, then just do clinical, right? Kind of play to your strengths, but don't give up one for the other. That said, also know your limitations. You know, I have amazing colleagues who do revisions who that are crazy revisions, right? I mean, I do the craziest revisions and I'm okay with that, but I'll do the revisions, I'll do primaries and robotic and things like that, but feel comfortable with what you're doing. Don't just do it to prove it to someone else, you know? So I think that's one of the things that I've learned about myself is say, okay, I don't need to do everything per se, but also be good at it. So I'll stay till 10 o'clock at night doing cases, you know, if I need to get better at it um, or, you know, I won't do as much research at a period of time. And so you'll see my research go up and down, you know, during COVID it went up because like, no one was operating. Right. And then the floodgates opened up and everyone was coming back and you're like, sorry, I'm not going to read that paper for a month <laughs> and it's okay. So. Yeah, but it seems like you've really found you're, found a real sweet spot at the Brigham. I mean, here you are in an academic setting, and obviously the mentors that that helped you. Now you're becoming a mentor for the younger fellows and residents and medical students, and so you can really provide that that amazing clinical experience inside the operating room, all the things that you've taken, but then also be able to get involved with the research and and help people with the next generation to be great as well. So. You know, I think you're 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 in a good spot. You're doing good stuff. I think this Harvard thing is good for you. I uh, I'm really happy to hear that for you for sure. So I thought we'd sort of as we get get closer to the end, I thought we we would try to sort of message a little bit. We always joke around. You know, my mother always listens to the show. Hi, mom, and and we like to be able to describe things for from our listeners that are not necessarily orthopedic surgeons about some of the cool things that are happening and, and things that they can understand and appreciate. So. What would you say, I mean, you know, research is obviously what you're doing as well with clinical findings and, you know, experience-based is great. That's how we learn residency. That's how we learn to operate. But evidence-based medicine is also so important as well. So what would you tell my mother and the patients out there that you think maybe is one or two of the most important research findings that you've found in joint replacement that affects them at a personal level as to what their outcomes perhaps might be? That's a tough one. 
Securing you is a tough one. Um, so I'll go personal for it. I would say my biggest thing and research interest is infection, right? But not how to treat how to treat the infection, not how to diagnose an infection. If it were my mother, how to prevent them? What can I do to prevent infections? And my mom really wants to know how to prevent arthritis. And I said, that is way beyond my pay grade. But I can look at preventing infections. And one of the areas that I'm looking at right now is vitamin D. You know, that's something that's big in the news. That's big because of COVID. So does taking vitamin D, for example, if we supplement patients before surgery, does that improve your outcomes? Does it reduce your risk of infections? Does it improve how you do? And so if we can do stuff on our own, can that make an outcome difference on our patients? And there's some things that we already know that make a difference. For example, if you stop smoking before surgery, not only does it save you money, but you can have a better outcomes and potentially a better health outcome in life later on. And we look at things like diabetes. You know, if you control your sugars, and we're actually even looking at patients, let's say after surgery, surgery is stressful. When surgery is stressful, your sugar levels go up. If your sugars levels go up, your increased risk of infection. So what do you do? You control your sugars after surgery. You eat less sugar. Now I have to admit, if I were having surgery and I'm going to stress eat, I'm going to just eat sugar. <laughs> That's all I want to do, <laughs> right? I just want to put on the carbs and I just want to feel better about myself. But actually, that's the key portion where you do lean proteins and you get your body back into shape after surgery and before surgery, too. So those are the kind of areas that I look at and say, look, how can we make your outcomes better? Let's prime you so that you're better prior to surgery. And one of those areas, too, is also physical exercise, physical rehabilitation. We call it prehabilitation, which means before surgery, you're doing exercises so that after surgery, you're stronger. So all these things contribute to better outcomes. And it's like, what can we control? Because there's some things that are out of our control that we can't do, but we can control. And our patients can help us work on this and control that so that outcomes are better after surgery. Yeah, I mean, that's great advice, right? It's not just a hip. The hip has has a head. It's got a heart. It's got you know legs and stuff that go with it. So sort of that holistic approach of trying to really pr- to think about the entire body in the process of healing both before and afterwards, I think, is is really sagely sagely counsel for our mothers out there that are listening. So let's just pivot a little bit just to to the surgeons, because not everybody, you know, is a research professor at Harvard that's doing orthopedic surgery. We've got a lot of private practice people out there that are doing, you know, a few hips and knees there out there, but not necessarily crazy. But what could they do? What do you see right now in the research that's out there that are going to improve the outcomes for surgeons for, for surgeons that are out there doing a modest amount of joint replacement to help their patients? So one of the areas that I've personally tapped into is robotics. And it's one of those interesting things that when I, when I talk to a patient about robotics, they say to me, well, I don't want a robot doing a surgery. I want you doing my surgery. And I go, well, the robot's actually a tool I can use to hopefully get predictable outcomes for your surgery. And, you know, for a surgeon who does 100, 200, 500, 1,000 joints a year, you may not need a robotic system. But a robotic system could potentially give you the data you need or tensometers or some sort of technology interoperatively to hopefully give you a routinely balanced knee, a hip that's not going to dislocate. So that actually gives you more data and more information that we can't use with our own eyes. X-rays are another example of that. So any sort of interoperative technology can sometimes be helpful if used correctly to hopefully improve our patient's outcome because it makes the surgery more predictable. And I think as surgeons, we want to go into surgery not being stressed and come out happy with the outcome. And so using technology can actually be helpful in that way, I'd say. Yeah, we've heard a lot of that on the Ortho Show. You know, we, we try to provide counsel to our listeners. And, and uh, I think for sure that technology is, is coming. It's here. It's, there's going to be more of it 
as we move forwards. And uh, I think that's also, you know, also great advice. I think that, uh, you know, your story is phenomenal, Antonio. I mean, you're just on such a great trajectory. It's such a pleasure and to be able to talk to unique doctors like yourself from around the world, and each one has such an incredible story. Look, you know, you do have to sleep every once in a while. It does help to, you know, and get some exercise. Remember, we you got to heal yourself so you can heal others, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But do I'm sure you to say this because that's exactly what she'd be saying right now. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm still baffled at look, looking at your CV. I was still so impressed by it. You know, you're doing really remarkable stuff on the planet that you t- have here with your time on the planet. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your unique story here on the ortho show thanks so much i really appreciate it and i'm gonna go take a nap right now all right that's perfect make sure you hydrate too get some water this is dr scott sigmund hashtag follow the fro host of the ortho show till next time 